our Father, we give you thanks and praise for this wonderful day. For the day that you have made, we will rejoice and be glad in it. We will praise you and honor you by studying your word, by opening our minds and hearts, by letting it change us. Lord, give us a peaceful spirit right now as we break the bread of life. Be with Catherine and use her, Lord. Give her the words and the wisdom to share with us what you have taught her. And may you be glorified in all that is said and done. In Jesus' name, amen. How many of you discovered that the answer sheet was in the email lesson? <laughs> that was my boo-boo. <laughs> I wondered if some of you didn't quite go far enough and didn't see it. Like the time we had all the answers in the back of the books and some of you didn't discover that till the end of the year. <laughs> but that's not going to happen again, so don't count on that. But you must have had really good discussions today, right? Because everybody knew the answers. <laughs> Today's lesson is called Belshazzar meets Belteshazzar. How about that? Remember who Belteshazzar is? Daniel, his Babylonian name. We're going to be looking at Daniel chapter 5, going through verses 15 to 21. I could have stretched this out and had and finished chapter 5. I could have, but I decided not to because I'll finish it, Lord willing, next week. And I didn't want to start chapter 6, the lion's den chapter, because then we would just have to break it up over the summer months, and I'd probably have to review it anyway. So we're just going to finish this year with chapter 5 and uh, pick up next year. I hope you invite new people to come. It's going to be an exciting year next year because we do start out with that famous lion's den chapter and then we get into an awful lot of prophecy. A lot of prophecy in chapter 7, 8, and 9. Chapter 9 has the greatest prophecy in all the word of God, the 70 weeks prophecy. You've got to understand that prophecy if you want to understand everything. Um, but anyway, so invite friends. Let's fill this place out next year. We'll have, um, hopefully, two, two, two parts of Daniel. Part one, part two. And I am planning on doing a book on part one, which will be ready this summer. If you want it, you can contact me. They're working on the cover design right now. Great. Okay, so Psalm 4610. I know everybody in this room probably knows that psalm. It's on a lot of bumper stickers and even a coffee cup. I have a coffee cup with it on it. <laughs> but most of us only know the first part of that psalm. Be still and know that I am God. Right, we know that. But you know it goes on. God says, I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. That's the entire verse. Well, the Jews knew that psalm. They well knew that psalm. And thus the Jewish captives in Babylon could rest assured they could be still and know that God had a perfect and an unstoppable plan which would include a day of reckoning for idol-worshiping immoral Babylon. They could even look at their own history, which all of us should do every every generation should look at history and learn from history. We don't, unfortunately, but they could look at their own history and be assured that just as God had long before brought, brought down another very arrogant leader, proud leader, Pharaoh, 
and an idol-worshiping Egypt by way of his servant Moses and amazingly set free his enslaved people. Looking back at that, they could have confidence, they could be still and know that he is God and that he would also, in his own time, bring down proud, arrogant, insolent Belshazzar and the self-confident, idol-worshiping Babylonian kingdom to once again set his people free. And by doing so, he would be exalted. He would be exalted because the fulfillment of his prophetic word is an exhibition of his omniscient and omnipotent power because only, an, you know, that's only one who is the sovereign God of the universe can be all-knowing and all-powerful, correct? You know, can know the end from the beginning and predict what will happen in the future and have it come to pass. And so he would be exalted. And this time around, instead of being exalted through Moses, his servant Moses, he would be exalted through his servant Daniel, who he, just like Moses, had orchestrated, strategically placed him in the heart of Babylon to speak forth God's truths and God's predictions to at least two of Babylon's kings, Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar. We will see him speak forth truth to Belshazzar in our lesson today. So what was God's prophetic word regarding the fall and the demise of the Babylonian empire prior to the night of his final message to this kingdom, which he, he wrote rather spectacularly <laughs> with his fingers, fingers on the plaster wall, probably above the head of the king himself. Um, that was his final message of imminent doom to Babylon. But what was his message, God's message, before that? Well, what we should know, and this is important, we should know that chronologically, by the time of King Belshazzar's feast, Daniel had already received the dream visions of both chapters 7 and 8. Now remember I said there's about a quarter of a century of time that passed between chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar's tract, his testimony tract, and then his death a year later, um, and what we read about with Belshazzar's banquet. And during those 23 or 25 years, Daniel um, received those, those dream visions from God that we will read about next fall in chapter 7 and chapter 8. And when we get to the latter half of this book, it's not so chronological as the first half. It's a lot of, um, you know, going back in time. So that means that he knew what was going to come to pass before he went in to see Belshazzar. And we know that those chapters occurred, he received those dreams in the first year of Belshazzar's reign. Go ahead and take a peek at chapter 7, verse 1. Go ahead and take a peek at chapter 8, verse 1. So when Daniel got his two dream visions, it was the first year of the reign of King Belshazzar. Now the feast, the banquet, with the handwriting on the wall, is not only the last year of Belshazzar's reign, but it's the last day of the reign of Belshazzar. So this means, bottom line, this means that Daniel now knew that the rising Medo-Persian forces under Cyrus the Great 
that that was the kingdom represented by the silver breast and arms of the image in Nebuchadnezzar's dream of chapter 2, and it was also what was represented by Daniel's own dream vision about a ram with two horns, okay, that he receives in chapter 8. Look, for example, at chapter 8, verse 20. This is when Daniel had this second dream, and Gabriel, in the vision, is talking to him, and he tells Daniel, look at verse 20, the ram which thou sawest having two horns are the kings of Media and Persia. So when Daniel walks into that banquet hall, when he walks in there, he knew that that besieging army outside of the city walls was the army that was the new kingdom that was going to defeat Babylon. He knew that before he was even summoned into that room to interpret the writing on the wall. So no wonder he had no interest in Belshazzar's promised reward of a scarlet robe and a gold chain and to be the third ruler in the kingdom of Babylon. Big deal. Babylon didn't even last through the night. <laughs> and he knew all this ahead of time. Um, he also knew that God was almost finished using Babylon to chasten his own people. Israel's land had gotten, almost gotten. Now, Daniel has been in Babylon for almost 67 years by this point in time. Okay, so Israel, the land of Israel, has almost gotten her Sabbath rest for the land. And therefore, it was almost time, and Daniel knew this, it was almost time for the Jewish people to return home. Where would Daniel have learned um, about the land rest issue regarding the time frame of the Babylonian captivity? You know, there was a law, God made a law, that the land was to rest every seventh year. You weren't to plant any crops. That was called the year of sabbatic rest. And the Jewish people had not been obeying that law for 490 years, which means that they owed him 70 years of rest for the land. Well, how would Daniel have connected that with the time that they would be in captivity in Babylon? Well, he himself gives us the answer to that question in chapter 9. Go ahead and look at chapter 9, verse 2. He tells us that in these 25 years, when he's no longer in the palace, you know, obviously Nebuchadnezzar died, and a new king came to the throne, his son Evil Merodach, and he brought in his new cabinet, and Daniel was no longer in the White House of Babylon, we could say. So what was he doing? Well, he tells us he was reading and studying the prophecies of Jeremiah, for one. I'm sure he was reading and studying any Old Testament scrolls he had his hands on, but one of them was Jeremiah. And through Jeremiah, God gave a whole lot of prophecy regarding the rise and the fall of the Babylonian Empire. Now, Jeremiah prophesied for almost 40 years, or some 40 years. He started when he was just, God called him to be a prophet when he was just a young boy. He was, um, it was during the 13th year of the reign of King Josiah. Remember, Je Josiah was a good king. He, he brought about a lot of revival in, um, in, in the land of Judah. Well, he continued to prophesy, Jeremiah did, 
through the last five kings of Judah, all the way up to the time of the destruction of Jerusalem in that third um, invasion by Nebuchadnezzar, when he destroyed the temple in Jerusalem and took away the third exile of, of people and left the land basically barren. Jeremiah stayed in the land, and he continued even to prophesy for a little while after all the Jews had been carried off into captivity. So he had a long ministry, and he wrote a lot about the rise and fall of Babylon. He wept a lot. What is he called? What's his nickname? The weeping prophet, because nobody ever listened to him. He told them, you know, if you guys don't put away your idols and get yourselves right again with the Lord, um, <laughs> you're going to, imminent judgment is coming. Nebuchadnezzar's, he even called him by name. You know, he's God's servant. He's going to come, and you're going to be taken away into captivity. But nobody ever listened to him. Poor guy. Anyway, um, he specifically, and this is in Jeremiah 25, verses 8 to 13, he specifically predicted that the time of the Jewish captivity in Babylon would be 70 years. He said that. And that's the exact number of years, and he mentioned this, that they owed the land for having neglected God's sabbatical year of rest. So Daniel knew they would only be there for 70 years. Now only a remnant went back when Cyrus let them, and Daniel didn't go. He was too old by that time, but he knew that they would be free to go back to the land. Well, Jeremiah also wrote, and this is interesting, um, he wrote that the Babylonian kingdom would not extend past Nebuchadnezzar's son's son. Now remember, they don't use the word grandfather or grandson. But in Jeremiah 27, 7, he said that that kingdom would not go past the third generation from Nebuchadnezzar. And who would that be? Belshazzar, because he was his grandson. And the God, God's word is always fulfilled. So you see, when Daniel went into that room to read the interpretation on the wall, um, the writing on the wall, he knew all this stuff ahead of time. I don't know if we've ever put that together in our mind. So, uh, and along with, you know, he'd already had the, the uh, he had interpreted the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had about the head of gold being replaced by the silver um, and the arms of Medo-Persia. He was told by Gabriel that was Medo-Persia, you know, and then he has his own dreams, and then he's got Jeremiah. So he puts it all together, and he knows that it's doom. And I'm sure his eyes, when they glanced at those four words, only four words, one of them is the same word repeated, so it's really only three words, many, many, tekel, Perez. He glanced at that, and he instantly knew this is the end for Babylon, for ba Belshazzar and Babylon. Well, what are some of the other specific prophecies that God revealed about the demise of the Babylonian kingdom through Jeremiah? They're, they're amazing. Here's just some of them I'm going to give to you, and you don't have to write them down because they'll be in your lesson, I mean your email lesson. Um, he wrote that Babylon would be attacked from the north by the kings of the Medes. That's Jeremiah 51:11, and that's exactly what happened. By the way, Isaiah also prophesied a lot about the destruction of Babylon. And he was, I mean, we're talking decades, Isaiah even maybe like 100 years before it happened. So all this is, you know, prophecy way before it happened. Uh, Isaiah talked about the destruction by the Medo-Persians, specifically Isaiah 13. Jeremiah said that the city of Babylon, when it was 
conquered, that it would be well stocked with provisions. Remember what we discussed last week? They felt so confident that night of the banquet because they had 20 years of, of groceries stacked up in their pantry. I mean, they didn't, they, they thought they were fine. They could outlast any siege. Um, and he also said, Jeremiah said, that they would be trusting in their high walls and their towers and their gates. That's in Jeremiah 51, and that's exactly what they were doing. He said that the city would be taken by way of a very clever strategy. She would be caught in a snare at a time when she was totally unaware. You know, when they're inside that banquet, what are they saying basically to themselves? Peace and safety. <laughs> and then sudden destruction, just like a thief in the night. And that's in Jeremiah 50. By the way, a lot of these are in Jeremiah 50 and 51, those two chapters. And he went on and he said that, this is in chapter 51, that this clever strategy involved the drying up of the Euphrates River that went right through the center of Babylon. And even though this was precisely the way that General Ugbaru, who was the, um, the one who led the armies of Cyrus against Babylon, and that's exactly the way that Babylon was conquered. Some man, I don't know if it was Ubaru himself, the general, or one of his soldiers or somebody came up with this idea, why don't we just rechannel the Euphrates River, dig a trench and have it go somewhere else, and dry up the riverbed, and then we can just walk under where there are no walls that go 35 feet into the ground, we can just walk in on that dry riverbed. The night we know they're having a feast because everybody in town will be drunk. They won't be paying any attention, and we'll go in and conquer the city. That's exactly how it was conquered. History tells us that, and God had predicted it all along. But even though maybe the general came up with that idea or some soldier, you know what God said through Jeremiah? Here's what he said. I will dry up her sea. And I will make her springs dry up. And what is that evidence of? You know, God, he's sovereign, right? He can even put ideas in our heads. Have you ever suddenly had, I always get my ideas at the strangest time, usually when I'm vacuuming. vacuuming. I don't know why that is, but when I'm vacuuming, I get these ideas. And sometimes, oh, why didn't I ever think of that before? Who really actually put that idea in my head? If it's a good one. If it's a bad one, it's not God. But it was a good idea. I mean, he can, and he obviously put that idea in somebody's mind, dry it up. But he had actually said that's how it would be conquered. So maybe somebody was reading the Bible and said, hey, here's how God said it. Do you think God knows how the United States is going to end one day? Oh, yeah, he does. And I say that, that's not very optimistic, is it? Hmm. I hope that's not true. I hope we don't end, but... Then he also said, and this is in Jeremiah 51, 57, that at the critical time of Babylon's destruction, a feast would be in progress. He predicted that. He said that the nobles and the princes would be in attendance at this feast and their drunkenness would lead to their own slaughter. That is very specific. Now, although drunkenness, and of course this whole chapter is telling us it's not good to be drunk. Don't go out and get drunk, ladies. Don't get drunk. It has led to the destruction of not only empires. I mean, it was the destruction of so many in history. I think Napoleon and Alexander. You know, Alexander choked on his own vomit. That's how he died, because he was drunk. It's led to the destruction of a lot of families, 
Um, I was just reading a, a book from a lady I met in Rhode Island, amazing, amazing woman. She's in her 70s, and she called me because she uses our materials, and she is one of the most fascinating women I have ever talked to. She's a walking Job. She's been through so much in her life. I cannot believe it. I asked her if she'd come and give her testimony. She's got, there's a chapter in the book I just gave Terry to, um, about her. But um, her whole family, her husband, and this is just one part of her story, but her husband and her three sons were killed by a drunk driver. All, her whole family, it was her whole family. Mm, amazing. But drunkenness, she said that was it. No, no, all three of her sons. Yeah. She didn't have any family left. Anyway, um, drunkenness, even though it was a literal factor in the demise of the, you know, if they hadn't all been drunk and if, if Belshazzar had been alert, maybe that wouldn't have happened. Maybe they would have noticed that they were drying up the Euphrates River. Don't you think somebody in the city would have said, hey, there's no water here anymore because the river went right through the middle of the city. But if, if they hadn't been drunk, maybe it wouldn't have fallen. But it was a literal factor. But also the biblical expression of being uh, drunk speaks of being spiritually deceived. Righteous believers are portrayed in the scripture as being sober. You know, be sober, be vigilant for your adversary, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. But we're spoken of as sober, whereas the spiritually deceived are called drunken. Babylon is the worldwide source and the leader of idolatry and spiritual deception. It all began way back in Babel, and then, of course, Babylon, same place. In Revelation 17, mystery Babylon the Great, it's all in capitals, is described as the great whore who sits upon many waters. What does that mean? Well, it means that her, she has dispersed her evil influence through all the nations. Waters, sea, speaks of the nations. The words whore and harlot, I hate saying those words, but they're in the Bible. They're used repeatedly in the Old Testament to speak of spiritual adultery. It says in Revelation 17 that the kings of earth, just like Belshazzar, the kings of earth have committed fornication with her. And many inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. Revelation 17, 2. They are seduced by this harlot system, becoming intoxicated with the beauty of all her external rituals. Now, Babylon is a source of every false religion and cult that there is. Everyone, except Christianity. Christianity isn't a religion. It's a relationship with the living God. But besides Christianity, every false teaching out there, spiritual teaching, is from Babylon. It's all part of the Babylonian system. And a lot of those religions, you have to admit, they're, they're beautiful to look at. There's a lot of um, statues and icons and a lot of um, incense and, and gold and beauty, right? And a lot of people are impressed with the pageantry of it all. And so they've been intoxicated. And then they have this mind-numbing sense of false security that they feel in her defiled bed, you know, because they feel like they're doing their thing. They're, they're being spiritual. They're making God happy, whatever God they think they're, that they're serving. Interestingly, this great false religious system is described as being arrayed in scarlet. 
red, scarlet, um, and gold. And she has a golden cup in her hand, and that cup is full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. That's interesting, and that's the description of Mystery Babylon, the great whore, in Revelation 17. And she's riding on a red a beast. And who's the beast? Satan. Um, but it's interesting that Belshazzar, who was the, that proud, arrogant last king of Babylon, what does he offer as a reward for anyone who can read the handwriting on the wall and interpret it? <laughs> Scarlet clothing and gold necklace? And what had he and his lords and ladies, what had they been doing? Blasphemy, and you know, they had golden cups in their hands, and they were blasphemously desecrating those golden vessels from God's temple. It was an abomination to God, not only because they were used to praise all their, their idols, but also because those vessels were used to get drunk with you know, the wine in them, and also to um, then commit fornication because the whole thing turned into a, a big orgy. So that's interesting, that connection there. It's very important to take seriously everything that the Bible has to say about Babylon. And the Bible has a lot to say about it. It's a thread that goes all the way through. It started in Genesis 11, right, with the Tower of Babel. And it goes all the way to Revelation 17 and 18. Both of those are about the Babylonian system. The circumstances that took place with the first Babylon this fall, this night of Belshazzar's feast, that is more than just what happened that night. It is a prophetic picture of, of a pattern that would follow through all the times of the Gentiles right up to the end of this whole system that we read about in Revelation. Babylon, originally Babel, was the first and foremost kingdom rooted in pride and arrogance, right? Under Nimrod, didn't they think they could do it their way? I did it my way. You know, we can reach to heaven our way through our efforts. She not only served her large pantheon of gods and goddesses, but she was, Babylon was and is, Satan's evangelist to the rest of the world as far as false religions and uh, spiritual deceptions are concerned. And sooner or later, doesn't usually take much time, but sooner or later, this system, whatever little section of this whole system is, they end up persecuting God's people and attacking and mocking God himself. It says, Revelation 17, 6, that she is drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. But in the end, all of these things will be brought down upon her own head in her own ultimate destruction by God himself. Just like ancient Babylon, the end times destruction of the Babylonian world system of the tribulation days will come suddenly, unexpectedly, you know, to an end. It says it will be in one hour, just like Babylon of old was taken in one hour. Um, she too will be, uh, and she'll be beyond redemption. It will be complete and utter destruction beyond redemption. And that is one reason whenever you read about the fall of Babylon, there is a double use of the word fallen. Babylon is fallen, is fallen. 
It always says twice because she's going to be beyond redemption. That emphasizes that. And also because there are two parts of Babylon. There is the false religious system, which we read about in Revelation 17. That's that woman, the great whore riding on the beast. She represents the one world Babylonian religious system. And then there is the chapter 18 of Revelation, the whole world system, the anti-God political world system. Both will fall suddenly, you know, as a thief in the night. One hour. Well, the deceptive mask of wealth, and she's kind of like the witch in Snow White. All right, you know, looks beautiful. <clears throat> Isn't that the one that says mirror, mirror on the wall? Am I got the right one? Story. <laughs> and as you know, she's the be most beautiful until she finds out Snow White is more beautiful when she can turn into a witch, you know, when she takes her mask off. It's really ugly. Well, this woman, this, this great whore, this Babylon, Babylonian world system, religious system, she looks outwardly. She's got all her makeup on and her hair up, everything, you know, looks pretty. She's got a mask on. Uh, and that mask is wealth and scarlet and gold and all that, you know, the external beauty of this harlot system. And it makes her irresistibly attractive to the masses of the people many of whom are quite poor, and many of whom are, are uneducated, unlearned. They don't have the advantage that you and I have this morning of studying God's word. A lot of them don't even have God's word, and so they have been deceived. And they worship her great wealth, and they are easy prey for her spiritual, her perpetual seductions and her temptations to partake in her riches and in her pleasures and subsequently in her blasphemies against God and his Christ. And a lot of this system even uses those names, God and Christ. But they're not the same God and Christ that we know in the scripture. And so with a golden cup of, of, uh, full of sparkling wine in her hand, her invitation has been offered to victims, her victims, for centuries, actually more than centuries, millennium, if you go all the way back to the original Babel. And I, I just think disastrously how many billions, we're talking billions of people, have been won to her by her sensual allurements. But they have, in doing so, they have forfeited their own souls by drinking from the wine of her extended hand and lying in her defiled bed of doctrinal deception. Do you know how many people in this world are deceived by doctrinal deception? I just had some Jehovah's Witnesses the other day. It's funny. They, I didn't even let them get out of the car. Uh, I have a little beeper that tells me when someone's coming down the driveway, and it went beep, beep, and I was there alone. And I, I looked out the window, and I saw them getting out, and I saw what was in their hand, and I knew who they were. And I ran out there in my house coat, and I said, don't bother getting out of the car, ladies. You're Jehovah's Witnesses, aren't you? Yes, ma'am. I am a born-again Christian. I believe in the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Goodbye, get in your car. Well, after that, they went to my daughter's house on our, you know, she lives on our land. And after that, she went to our adopted son's house who lives on our land. And um, it was funny because my um, adopted son, I call him, he called me later that day. He said, did you have Jehovah's Witnesses? I said, I sure did. He said, well, you must have said something because when they got to my house, they said, well, that makes three in a row. <laughs> 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 
I should say, go to our neighbors because we're surrounded by Christians too, all on all sides. I'm sure they got very frustrated in our neighborhood. Anyway, um, but so many people have been deceived by this system and they wind up in hell. It's just so tragic, 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 tragic. The cup she holds in her hand is a cup full of lies and full of abominations, and her bed is a place of the filthiness of her affairs with Babylonianism and spiritual wickedness. How many people, only God knows, how many people have entered into hell? Hell is real. I just heard a message this morning coming in from Adrian Rogers. He said God, Jesus spoke more about hell than anybody else. Don't, don't be afraid of speaking about hell because it's real. And if you really have compassion and love for people, you need to tell them it is real. There is a hell. How many people are there because they have substituted religion for the truth? Make sure you don't just have religion, ladies. Religion is just a work system. Make sure you have a living relationship with the living God. That you've taken all those facts about Christ and moved them down here and received him. That's the most important thing I can tell you. Don't have religion. It won't get you anywhere except hell. Well, that was the introduction. Now let's get into our lesson. <laughs> this, uh, this lesson, Belshazzar meets <clears throat> Belteshazzar. We're going to continue our five-part out, five outline. <clears throat> Remember, last week we looked at the spiritual journey downward for Belshazzar. We looked at <clears throat> a degenerate Belshazzar, a distraught Belshazzar, a desperate Belshazzar. He got so desperate, he, you know, his knees were knocking together and he was nervous, that he actually, <clears throat> after he called in that threefold worldly group, you know, the worldly wise men. <laughs> Have you watched Pilgrim's Progress or read it? You know what I'm talking about. The worldly wise men, they, they could get him nowhere. They couldn't read it because they didn't have the equipment to spiritually discern the revelation of God. And so he's so distraught that he actually takes the queen mother's advice and he sends for Daniel. So we begin this lesson with Daniel's entrance into the banquet hall and the conversation that he has with Belshazzar. The Lord, again, had totally prepared the way before Daniel, right? He, he completely set the stage for his man to have the undivided attention, not only of the king, but of everyone else in that banquet hall. And so this next stage of the king's journey downward to destruction is called a doomed Belshazzar. So let's look at a doomed Belshazzar. First part of this section is a request and a reward. He makes a request of Daniel, which you know is to read <laughs> the writing on the wall and interpret it, and then he promises him that reward, which means absolutely nothing to Daniel. But that's what we're going to discuss in verses 13 to 16. So look with me, starting at verse 13, chapter 5. And now the wise men, the astrologers, oh, I'm sorry, that's 15, 13. Then was Daniel brought in before the king, and the king spake and said unto Daniel, Art thou that Daniel, which art of the children of the captivity of Judah, whom the king my father brought out of Jewry? I have even heard of thee, that the spirit of the gods is in thee, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom is found in thee. And now the wise men, the astrologers, have been brought in before me, that they should read this writing and make known unto me the interpretation thereof, but they could not show the interpretation of the thing. And I have heard of thee, that thou canst make interpretations and dissolve doubts. Now, if thou canst read the writing and make known to me the interpretation thereof, thou shalt be clothed with scarlet and have a chain of gold about thy neck and shalt be the third ruler in the kingdom. 
Okay, so Daniel. Daniel always arrives on the scene when everyone else has failed, right? Everyone else has failed in their mission. He's always alone. Do you notice that? He's always alone, and he's disconnected from everyone else. He didn't come in with the rest of the wise men, just like he never did even before Nebuchadnezzar. Remember, he stood alone as a teenager when he first purposed in his heart not to defile himself with the king's meat and the king's wine. Now, the other three guys joined him later on, but first of all, he was the one alone who purposed in his heart. That was chapter 1. He stood alone when he was a young man and interpreted the king's first dream about that image. That was chapter 2. He stood alone when he was a mature man, and he interpreted the king's second dream about the great tree. That was chapter 4. And now, in his old age, again, we find him standing alone to give the meaning of this mysterious handwriting. Chapter 5. He refused to compromise, didn't he? I mean, that's one word you always associate with Daniel uncompromising and daring, dare to be a Daniel. He refused to compromise with the pagan culture in which he was saturated. He refused to compromise with their beliefs and with their immorality. The only time, I thought about this, the only time we ever see Daniel alone is when he is either fellowshipping and praying with believers like Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, The only time when he's not alone is when he's with fellow believers, thank you, and when he's witnessing to an unbeliever. What an example. Otherwise, he kept himself separate, you know, be ye separate, come out from among them, from the rest of the world. But, of course, we want to fellowship with fellow believers, pray with fellow believers, study God's word with fellow believers. And when we're with the, the lost, what are we to do? Witness to them. We're to be salt and light to them. Well, that's what he did. Um, so again, we find him here, not with the crowd of the magicians, the astrologers, the soothsayers, and the Chaldeans who came in with their wisdom from the world that failed every time. Um, and so he's set apart, once again, as God's man in a time of crisis. I thought about this, too. Daniel had lived through. He lived through not only the reigns of some of the kings, the last kings when he was a little boy, of Judah, but then he lived through the whole reign of Nebuchadnezzar, and he lived through um, the reign of Evil Merodach and Neraglasser and Labish Marduk, Labashi Marduk, and Nabonidus. Now, I don't know, Nabonidus was out there outside the walls fighting against the, the army, the, the Medes and Persians, but by this time he's missing. The night of this feast, nobody knows where he is. He's probably already been captured. Um, and he's about to outlive Belshazzar, isn't he? Daniel's about to outlive young Belshazzar and the whole Babylonian kingdom. So Daniel even outlived, he outlived the kingdom of Judah. He outlived the kingdom of um, Babylon. And he went into, alive still into the next kingdom, the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians. Um, it appears that Daniel had not been consulted for a long time, right? Because who's the only one who remembers him? The old, old queen mother. She's about the only one that remembers him. Now, those 25 years or so between the death of Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar's feast were time, as we talked about this, time when the prophet obviously spent studying the scriptures, I'm sure because he prayed faithfully three times a day, we learned that in chapter 9, that he spent the time strengthening himself through prayer 
and fellowship with other Jewish believers and in the scripture. And those, therefore, were years that prepared him for not only this moment of truth with Belshazzar, um, but for an even greater trial that he's going to face in chapter 6. Now, you know, life is a series of tests. We've talked about this before. And I got to thinking about how Daniel's tests all could start with a D. He went through a lot of tests. He went, I have to turn my page sideways to read these, but he went initially as a young teenager through the deportment test when he was taken from his family and his homeland and his faith and his temple and everything and deported to Babylon. And then he would have gone through the depression test because that would be very depressing, right? Leave everything you were ever familiar with. And then when he gets to Babylon, he has to go through the deformity test because they made him into a eunuch. And then right away, he faced the diet test. Would he eat the king's meat? And then after that, the diploma test. And he graduated 10 times better than all the king's wise men. He went through the dream test <laughs> when he interpreted the dream. And now he is going to go, how do you like this name I came up with? The drunken despot test. But all of this is preparing, and that's what life is all about. We go through one test, what does it do? Further prepares us for the next test. That's up the road, and there's always another test coming your way. Um, but he had the biggest one yet was coming up, and it's what I call the Darius Den test, the lion's den test. Daniel was learning in all of this. He was learning that God is sovereign no matter what stage of life you're in. God is sovereign over every stage of our lives. He is sovereign in our childhood. I mean, he determined who our parents would be, where we were born, what country we were born, everything about us, our DNA. He's sovereign over our childhood. He's sovereign in our youth. He's sovereign in our middle age, and he's sovereign in our elderly years. He's also sovereign in those times of prominent positions. When, when Daniel was in the palace, God was sovereign. And he's sovereign in those times when everybody seems to have forgotten about us. We're kind of on the back burner of life. Remember Moses, 40 years on the backside of the desert. He's sovereign every step of our life, right? And he's still sovereign when we're on our deathbed. Amen? Well, Daniel had been out of the palace. Apparently, he'd also been out of his three important offices that Nebuchadnezzar had given to him. And that's be evident because when Daniel comes before Belshazzar, he essentially, I don't know if he asks him because the word art in verse 13 is not in the original, so we don't know for sure that that was a question. Are you Daniel? Is he asking him or is he making a statement? But either way, it becomes pretty obvious that um, he really didn't know Daniel by face. <laughs> so he hadn't really seen him. This is the first time he has met him. He, so he's obviously not the ruler over the province of, of Babylon. He's not the chief of all the wise men like he had been. And he's not sitting daily at the gate of the city like he had been. Or everyone in that room would have known him. But it seems that no one there did except the queen. You know, the younger generation, and I assume this is the younger generation, because Belshazzar was 36 years old when he died. So I'm sure he surrounded himself with his lords and his ladies, and they're all about his age. And they don't know Daniel. Belshazzar stressed three things in his opening statement to Daniel. <clears throat> First of all, he mentions his origin. Daniel was not a Babylonian, was he? He was a foreigner. He was one of the children of Judah. He makes sure to say that, verse 13. It's interesting 
that he mentions this, since they all were doing what? When the hand, the fingers came. <laughs> they all had been profaning the vessels from the temple of God in Judah. And that is so interesting. It's so ironic that it was now another vessel of God that had been taken from Judah in the person of Daniel. Was not he really a golden vessel of God that had been stolen from Judah? And yet he is the one that they have before them, even though they've been profaning the vessels from Judah, he's the one that they seek to help answer the cryptic words on the wall. Isn't that ironic? Doesn't God work in mysterious ways? And also, did you notice what Belshazzar called Daniel? Look at the, the name he called him by. He didn't call him Belteshazzar. He called him Daniel. Now that's interesting, and I think it's ironic, because do you remember what Daniel's name means in Hebrew? God is my judge. How appropriate is that going to be this night for Belshazzar? He's going to find out God is indeed his judge. Well, Belshazzar not only emphasized Daniel's country of origin, that he was from Judah, but he mentions his race. He says he was brought out of Jewry. That means he's a Jew. And there seems to be some scorn intended by the fact that his country and his race are the first things that Belshazzar mentions. And, of course, he also made sure to include his lowly position as a captive. He says he was of the children of the captivity of Judah. So this introduction or this first question, whatever it is, obviously was not intended to be very complimentary. He's looking down his nose at Daniel. Now, the queen, if you compare what the queen said, it's quite different. The queen had not mentioned Daniel's captivity status at all. Uh, Belshazzar does. The queen had spoken very highly of Daniel as one um, that Nebuchadnezzar had promoted to the master of the magicians, etc. She honored Daniel. If you go back and look, she honored Daniel in absolutely everything she said about him. Apparently not prejudiced at all about his nationality or his race or his faith. She did what we all should do. She looked at the man. She was impressed with the person. She was impressed with Daniel and with his wisdom and with his insight and the great help that he had been to Nebuchadnezzar in so many ways. And if she was Nebuchadnezzar's widow, she appreciated all that, didn't she? How much Daniel had helped her husband. And she saw beyond the typical Babylonian prejudice towards his captivity status or his, his uh, nationality, his race. If she was indeed the widow of Nebuchadnezzar, she may have learned these things from her husband. Now, this is kind of shocking, but if we think back, we do have to commend Nebuchadnezzar. Even before he was saved, Nebuchadnezzar had honored God for his accomplishments. He had. When he gave that final exam, he didn't care that they were Jews or that they were um, captives. He honored them and said, they're ten times wiser than any of my wise men who are Babylonian. And what did he do? He promoted them to great positions, especially Daniel. 
but the other three too, um, despite their captivity status, he made Daniel his prime minister. So don't you have to admit, I mean, Nebuchadnezzar was a wicked man in many ways before he got saved, but even before he got saved, he wasn't really a prejudiced man. And that was good. That was good. God saw the good in him. But Belshazzar, his grandson, was full of himself. This young guy was just full of himself. He seems to have thought more highly of himself than even his unsaved grandfather had later on in his life. He thought that he was better than anyone else. He, after all, he was a Babylonian. You know, big deal, right? <laughs> Babylonian, who cares? Um, but he did. He was a native of, the, of mighty, the mighty Babylonian people. And he was, he was born and raised in Babylon, which was a great city. You know, but he just had all this pride about it. He wasn't from some despicable little place that nobody ever heard of called Judah. Who cares? And then notice how he stresses the fact that he's of royal lineage. He says, the king, his father. Of course, that's grandfather. Um, so he was so proud of the fact that he was royalty. <laughs> Do you remember that Daniel is also of royal lineage? More important royal lineage, by the way. Went back to King David. He was of the seed of King Hezekiah. He was. Um, but that wouldn't mean anything to the proud Belshazzar. You'd think that he would be humbled by the shaking, wouldn't you? That he had just encountered with those fingers coming in and writing a message over his head. Wouldn't you think he'd be a little bit humbled? But I'm not seeing that here in these questions he's asking Daniel. What Belshazzar didn't know, and this is important, what Belshazzar did not know is that it is far, far, far better to know the sovereign God of the universe and be a captive than it is not to know him and be a king. Amen? So true. Well, after thinking, he had made it very clear to everyone in that room, you know, all the people he's trying to impress, his peers, um, he, tried, he made it clear who's the boss and who's the, the slave. Then he thought, well, maybe I better try to butter this guy up a little bit. After all, I am going to ask him a favor, you know. So he then admits to Daniel that he had heard of him. Wow, I've heard of you. Big flattery. Actually, he says that twice. Um, but unfortunately for Belshazzar, it was only by reputation. He had heard of him. He had never bothered to call him before his presence before and talk to him. This meeting, um, <clears throat> this meeting makes it very clear that he had made no effort to get to know Daniel prior to this event. That is really sad. After all he had heard about him, you know he did. About the fiery furnace, he could have asked them questions about that. Um, Daniel wasn't there, but he knew about it from his friends. He could have asked them about his grandfather's dreams and about his grandfather's seven years as a beast in the field. All kinds of things he could have learned from Daniel, but he never bothered to... Um, Ask him into his presence before. You know, people in the world are not very interested in getting to know the people of God, are they? Until when? <laughs> Until they have a crisis in their life. And then you might get that phone call from that long lost relative. Will you pray for me? Well, if you take careful notice of the things the king went on to say, he had heard about Daniel. They're really a repeat of what the queen mother had told him with several interesting alterations. First of all, verse 14, he said to Daniel that he had heard that the spirit of the gods was in him. Now, there's something interesting if you compare that to what the queen had said about Daniel over in verse 11. She said the spirit of the holy gods dwelt in Daniel. What did Belshazzar leave, Belshazzar leave out? 
the word holy. Now that's interesting. I don't know if you remember back to lesson number 17 when we talked about the Aramaic word for God, Elohim. It's very close to Elohim in Hebrew, and it ends with a plural ending, and it can mean gods with a small g, plural, or it can mean God with a big G, because our God is plural. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And so the translators just didn't know, you know, so they sometimes put gods and sometimes put God. And so she, here's the bottom line, she could have, and especially if she was the widow of Nebuchadnezzar, okay, because she saw the change in her husband. She, it, she with Daniel, held that empire together for seven years and got to know Daniel really, really well. So maybe she said of Daniel, in whom is the spirit of the God. That's very possible translation because you can go either way with that word. But Belshazzar definitely said holy, and he left out holy, so we know what gods he's talking about because the pagans knew their gods were not holy. They admitted that. They knew. They weren't separate. They weren't holy. So for her sake, I hope she did get saved. I don't know. That's pure speculation. We'll look for her when we get to heaven, okay? Remember to put her on your list to look for. <laughs> Amethyst. <laughs> now, another difference in Belshazzar's words about Daniel from the queen is that um, he left out her comments about Daniel's ability to interpret dreams. He didn't say anything about dreams. I guess he didn't want to remember his grandfather's dreams. He didn't say anything about how Daniel could show hard sentences, and I don't know if there's any significance in that, but he left that out. But the most significant difference between Belshazzar and what the queen said is their confidence in Daniel. The queen said, remember this? She gave a command. She said, now let Daniel be called and he will show the interpretation. She knew it. No shadow of doubt in her mind. He would show, he'd tell him what it meant. But what does Belshazzar say to Daniel? If, if you can read the writing and make known to me the interpretation. Despite all that he had heard from both the history of his grandfather and just recently from the queen about Daniel, yet we find Belshazzar is still very skeptical that Daniel can do what everybody said. After all, he had just told Daniel that even all his wise men and his astrologers could not interpret the, the writing. It appears he has serious doubts whether Daniel could do this or not. But hoping, maybe, that the same reward he had offered his wise men might, you know, spark some kind of an interest in this old Jew giving some kind of interpretation, and I'm sure he's hoping it's going to be a good interpretation. You know, he offers him the same reward, the scarlet clothing, the gold chain, and a third position in the kingdom. So now we turn to Daniel's response to Belshazzar's request and his reward. Look with me at verse 17 to 21. I have no idea what time it is, so I'm speaking as fast as I can. All right. then, then Daniel answered and said before the king, let thy gifts be to thyself. Now that's pretty bold, right? Keep your gifts <laughs> and give them to another. Give thy rewards to another. Yet I will read the writing unto the king and make known to him the interpretation. O thou king, the most high God, isn't that interesting? Almost the first thing he says is about God. The most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, thy father, a kingdom and majesty and glory and honor. And for the majesty that he gave him, all people, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he slew, and whom he would, he kept alive, and whom he would, he set up, and whom he would, he put down. But when his heart was lifted up and his mind hardened in pride, 
he was deposed from his kingly throne, and they took his glory from him. And he was driven from the sons of men, and his heart was made like the beasts, and his dwelling was with the wild asses. We'd never read that before. We'd never heard that before, did we? He was with the asses in the grasses. I, I thought about making a poem out of that. <clears throat> no, no. All right. But his dwelling was with the wild asses. They fed him with the grass. Like oxen, his body was wet with the dew of heaven till he knew that the Most High God ruled in the kingdom of men and that he appointeth over it whomsoever he will. We're not going to talk about this verse, but I want to go ahead and read verse 22 just to see, to let you see how brazen Daniel is. And then he says, And thou, his son, O Belshazzar, hast not humbled thine heart, though thou knewest all this. Did Belshazzar know all about his grandfather and his testimony track and everything has changed life? Yes, he did. He was sinning in light, more light than Nebuchadnezzar had ever had. Well, in his opening address, notice <laughs> Daniel did not begin with the common polite address that even the queen had said. Let's say it together. Oh, king, live forever. Even she had said that. But Daniel didn't. He just omitted that because it was not only hypocritical to say it to begin with because nobody lives forever, but it was doubly hypocritical for him to say it knowing he was going to die that night. So he didn't say it. Um, Daniel didn't ignore the king's request. He didn't claim separation of church and state. <laughs> Nor did he self-righteously say, I will not uh, do this for you. I will not dirty myself. Um, by speaking to you guys, you, you lewd lord and ladies and you profane king. You know, I wipe my hands clean of you. I won't do it. I won't, you know, interpret. But he did make it very clear, didn't he, that he was not at all interested in the wealth or the power or the prestige that they could offer him. He told the king to keep his gifts. Keep your stinking gifts. He didn't say stinking, but keep them. Give them to somebody else. I could care less. His ministry could not be bought. That's the way it should be. Couldn't be bought. He was a servant of the Most High God. He had been called to help people by telling them the truth, no matter how much they didn't want to hear it. That was his, and he, he wouldn't fleece people like so many in ministry today do. Well, the moment he looked at those four words on the wall, two of them the same, he knew that the king and his kingdom were at an end. He knew it actually even before he walked into that room. And he couldn't care a whit about that Babylonian scarlet robe, the gold chain. He knew a third position in the kingdom was like having a third of nothing. <laughs> but here's what's interesting. We find, um, if you look ahead at verse 29, Belshazzar insisted on giving him those rewards anyway. They, they clothe him in the scarlet and they put the chain around his neck, you know, and they give him a third position, even though it didn't even last through the night. But Belshazzar insisted on doing that and here's what's interesting. Um, if you look ahead at J Daniel 6, verses 1 to 3, we read that Darius the Mede, who was, and I'm going to tell you something you didn't know before probably, Darius the Mede is one as, and the same as General Ugbaru, who was the one outside with the troops and walked through the city on that dried up Euphrates riverbed. His name was changed. His, his given name was Ugbaru, but Darius is a title, like king. So he is the same. 
And he, when he comes into the kingdom, Cyrus, who is the emperor of the whole Medo-Persian empire, he's like the Caesar over the whole thing, he makes Ugubaru the king of Babylon, that province. And you know what Darius does? He sets up Daniel as his prime minister, so to speak. And you, you learn that in verses 1 to 3. So guess what? He did become third <laughs> in Babylon, really, because he's still in the same city. It's just not now part of a new kingdom. But so who really rewarded him? Did Belshazzar reward him? Did Darius reward him or Cyrus? No, actually, God gave him that position because he did his job. He dutifully read the, you know, he did what he was supposed to do at risk of his own life. You know, when the messenger, sometimes they killed the messenger. It was bad news. Um, but God also wanted Daniel in the, the next White House of the next kingdom. And he does indeed have an influence over Darius. Darius is very, very upset that he gets tricked into throwing Daniel into the lion's den. You know that. All right, so that's so, God works in such mysterious ways. I am almost done, Terry, don't panic. All right, so certainly Daniel was not interested in trying to join the elite club of Belshazzar's lord so that the next time there was a party, he would be invited. You know, at 81 years old, you know, when you get older, you don't really care about being invited to all the parties, do you? I hope even when you're young, you don't care that much about being invited to all the parties. <laughs> um, his loyalty and his citizenship were elsewhere, and yet he knew he was God's ambassador, and so he was obligated to speak for God. And so he agreed to both read and interpret God's revelation to the king and the court via the finger writing on the wall. I call it not handwriting, but it's really finger, hand, finger writing. Daniel confronted the king with an unusual approach. He started with a history lesson. As I said earlier, history could teach people and nations a whole lot if they were only willing to learn the lessons of those who have gone before us. Daniel, I mean, um, Belshazzar should have learned lessons from his grandfather, shouldn't he? And, and even, you know, from the history of, of Babylon. Do you, have you learned lessons from your grandparents, um, from your parents, um, mistakes that they had made and they told you don't make it, and have you listened, or good things they've done and you want to copy that, you want to emulate, maybe you have a good heritage and you want to live up to that? We should learn from history, but sadly, history doesn't learn from history. It's as German philosopher Hegel said, quote, history teaches that man learns nothing from history. Well, that's so true. That's why the history of mankind has been so repetitive over and over again. Our nation is falling down the same trap. The king should have learned much needed lessons on pride from what had happened to his grandfather. He had been given great light from his grandfather's life and from his testimony of his changed life. He certainly should have known better than to have mocked the God of the Jews. I mean, after all, he knew about the fiery furnace and how those three guys came out of there. You know, he even disobeyed his grandfather's decree not to mock the God of the Jews, right? And, and you, it earned his grandfather seven years of being with asses in the grasses, right? <laughs> so you think, how dare, how stupid of him to go and mock God by getting the vessels from his temple. Um, 
so Daniel, Daniel's very wise. He's like a wise court prosecutor. He's beginning with historical facts. He's building up his case. He's laying his foundation for the judgment to come. And the rest of the chapter is devoted to how Belshazzar had prostituted his glorious inheritance and how God judged him and his nation for it. Daniel says, O thou king Belshazzar, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar thy father a kingdom, majesty, honor, glory, but, but, what happened? God, you know, he gave him, he gave him everything. He, had, he was an absolute monarch. Who he wanted to slay, he could slay. He had power like that. Who he wanted to lift up, he could lift up like he did a captive. He had absolute power, but his heart was lifted up, his mind hardened in pride. If I was Belshazzar and I heard this, I'd start, my knees would be knocking again. I think he's getting the picture. This isn't going too well. <laughs> and he says he was deposed from his throne and his glory was taken from him. What he does is he gives him a reminder, a review of Nebuchadnezzar's position. Who put him in his throne? God. He, said, he reminds him of his power. Where did Nebuchadnezzar get his power? From God. He reminds him of his pride. Where'd that come from? Not God, from self. Then he reminds him of his punishment. Where did his punishment come from? God. And then he reminds him of the purpose for all of it, the punishment. It was all about God, so that he would learn that the Most High is sovereign. Hearing this should have made Belshazzar very nervous. He should have fallen right then on his face and repented, because he knew all this about his grandfather, and yet he too had lifted himself up against the Lord of heaven. If he was beginning to think that the message that would come from that writing on that plaster wall from this old Jew was not going to be very good, he was right, wasn't he? He was absolutely right because he had sinned against even greater light, and this is one of your questions, <laughs> than his grandfather. And his greater knowledge made him more accountable. Isn't that true with us? The more knowledge we have, the more accountable we are. The greater the light of truth one has, the greater the judgment for the sin in ignoring that light of truth. Now, I actually had a little extra time on my hand this week. I know it's really hard to believe. But I wrote a poem, and it's called Finger Writing on the Wall. At the foolish feast of Belshazzar and 1,000 of his lords, they drank from temple vessels, so the word of God records. At that banquet of debauchery, the night of Babylon's fall, laughing lewdness turned to fear fingers writing on the wall. None knew just what their message meant till Daniel before them came and rebuked that prideful monarch for his blasphemous deeds of shame. He read aloud God's cryptic words, "'Twas the doom of one and all. Numbered, weighed, and wanting, said that message on the wall." There was righteous truth and boldness in the man of God that night. The spirit filled old Daniel. T'was the source of all his might. Dragged from his native Judah, a mere captive in that hall, yet he understood the writing of his God upon that wall. All words and deeds recorded, heaven's fingers write them now. So give your heart to Jesus. 
to his gospel message bow. The day is fast approaching. Death comes to one and all. Make sure you know the Savior so your doom's not on that wall. <laughs> Thank you. All right, let's pray. Father, the attitude of so much of our nation today, a nation I know we all love, but we also know that so much of the attitude greatly dishonors you, and it will indeed bring your divine judgment. It's, it's just guaranteed. Unless we change, it's guaranteed based on your word and based on what history has shown to us. We have indeed been given so much light concerning the truth of your holy word and of your holy son. And yet as a whole, that knowledge is being scorned and ridiculed and rejected today. There are far too many of our fellow citizens who are turning their backs on our history and on you, and they're even openly mocking you and your absolute standards of right and wrong, and they are replacing you with all their ridiculously man-made idols, worthless things that they spend all their time and money and, and energies praising while you are the very one who holds their next breath in your hands. Father, we are well aware of the fact that the handwriting to our nation is on the wall and you have been trying to get our attention. So the big question is, will we listen or will we further harden our hearts? And it's my prayer and I know it's a prayer of every woman here that we will listen. Oh, Father, may we truly, truly repent of our sins and turn back to you as a people, as a nation. That is the prayer of our hearts. And we ask these things in the blessed name of the one and only Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. God bless you.